Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are all about commitment. Over the next hour, we'll meet Washingtonians with a singular devotion to work. I believe if a man is capable of working, if he is healthy enough to do it, then you do it. And a passionate dedication to play. When I found out you can compete in ballroom, really snagged me. We'll visit the U.S. Senate, we'll head out on the Chesapeake Bay, we'll even swing by the corner barbershop as we bring you tales of commitment from across the D.C. region. Our first story today is inspired by something that, it's been said, makes the world go round. Something you can't buy, something you can't get enough of, something you even stop in the name of love. And the love we're talking about is the kind that makes you want to commit yourself to another person for the rest of your days. Now, if any of you can show just cause why they may not lawfully be married, speak now or else, forever hold your peace. That was the case with Margaret Berry and Frank May. Margaret hails from North Carolina, Frank from New York, and they recently met in Maryland. Within a week, they were engaged, and within a month, in front of 60 family members and friends, they were married. Oh, and did I mention both Margaret and Frank are in their 90s? When's your birthday? Uh, November 29th, 1921. And, and when were you born? I was born June the 7th, 1924. <laughs> I recently met the newlyweds in their cozy one-bedroom unit at Hartfields at Easton, a senior living community on the eastern shore. Do you remember how the two of you first met, how you first started talking to each other? I remember exactly where we met. <laughs> Both of us were sitting in that front hall. I was in the little bitty room right by the front door. Frank wandered in, <laughs> and he started telling me his life history, which was very interesting. We uh, hit it off. And the next day he appeared at my door at 8 o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> And we've been together ever since. What Margaret says about Frank's life history being so interesting, he was raised in Chile, where his father worked in the copper mining business. Frank attended college at Princeton, then MIT, and then he traveled the world, first with the Navy and then as a salesman. But what Margaret found most intriguing about Frank's tale? He'd had so many wives. That was what was so interesting. (laughs) Turns out Frank had two wives before Margaret came along. She's a story. She's a story. That's one, two, three. That's right. That's right. I can even remember the names. That's all right. We uh, don't need to publish <laughs> Frank was married to his first wife for more than 60 years. She died soon after they moved to Hartfields. He was then briefly married to another woman he met there. She passed away in the fall of 2014. I realized that I was not happy living by myself. And, uh, no, I was going to go out and find a mate. She had to be over 70 years old or I wouldn't have done it. You know, marry a young woman. No, I would not have done it. And in this place, of all places, with people, it's filled with retired women around here. <laughs> I thought it'd be easy to find somebody. Was it easy? No. <laughs> I was turned down so many times you can't imagine. But that most definitely was not the case with Margaret. So Frank proposed. Do you remember if you had to think about it, or did you just say yes? 
think I just said yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because I found him very attractive. <laughs> and we don't have much time, so <laughs> might as well use it, right? Margaret's been married once before. Her husband died about 10 years back. She's been on a few dates since then. Obviously, nothing stuck. But with Frank, she says, it was different. The first night I met him, I think we stayed up till 12 o'clock. And he had that, you don't ever do that. <laughs> since then, there's never been a dull moment. What's the secret to keeping the magic? That's not a problem. No, that's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> We're both healthy. <laughs> And he's very sexy. I'll put it that way if you want. (laughs) After they got married, uh, the couple didn't go on a honeymoon. While Margaret and Frank are incredibly healthy for their age, he takes a lot of medication, and they both experience some memory loss. But for these newlyweds, none of that seems to matter. We get along very well. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a crossword. We haven't had a bad word to each other. That's right. I think we really love each other, and that makes all the difference in the world. If you ask Frank and Margaret May what advice they have for anyone else out there seeking someone to love, someone with whom to settle down and start a life. Well, maybe not jump in it as quick as we did, but we didn't have that much time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But... Our choices were wonderful. may have missed Frank and Margaret's wedding ceremony, but you can have the next best thing. We have video from their big day on our website, metroconnection.org. We also have a gallery of photos, including a shot of the blushing bride feeding her groom a big old piece of wedding cake. Again, you can find it all at metroconnection.org. We'll swing back to D.C. now to hear from a man who's committed to the idea that if you're able to work, then you work. And as for who this hardworking fellow is, uh, here's a hint. Shake your groove thing, reunited, I pledge my love. These 1970s music hits came to us care of Peaches and Herb. And it turns out, for the latter half of the duo, Herb Feimster, music isn't the only thing that's kept him busy. The 73-year-old D.C. native has served in the Navy. He's put in time as a D.C. police officer. And for the past 29 years, he's been working as a deputized security guard at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. He shared his story with Hans Anderson. As my family can tell you, I don't feel I've ever made it. I just got blessed to have hit records, and I was doing what I enjoy doing, and that's singing and performing. My legal name is Herbert Feimster, but I go by the name Herb Fame in the industry. I was working at the Bureau of Engraving during the day, and I would leave the Bureau of Engraving at 3, and I would have to 
go to Waxy Max's at 7th and T and get there by 4. And I worked at Waxy's Maxis because it was around music and it was around the corner from the Howard Theater. And I had hoped to meet people that would listen to me. One day Van McCoy walked in. Van McCoy, his biggest record was a, a song called The Hustle. But he wrote for Gladys Knight and the Pips, Aretha Franklin. I said, I'm not going to ask anybody to listen. I'll just start singing. So I started singing, When I fall in love. Van said, wow. He said, I'll be back next week with my manager so we can audition you. And I thought, another lie. But he came back, took me to New York as a single artist. But he had a group of girls called the Sweet Things with uh, Peaches. But he got the idea that Peaches' voice and my voice were compatible. So we went in and we recorded Let's Fall in Love in a song called We're in This Thing Together. We're in this thing together, baby. We're in this thing together. We're gonna make it last forever. That was the A side. And Let's Fall in Love was the B side. So they were playing the A side everywhere, but in St. Louis, there was a disc jockey by the name of Robert B.Q. that turned it over to Let's Fall in Love, and that's where it jumped off. I left singing because eventually we got, I got tired of the hustle and the bustle and the running here because in the 60s, we, we drove most of the places that we had to perform. So I, I really got tired of the hassle, so I decided to come home and, and, and work. Let's take a chance. I recall riding down Benning Road, and there was a trailer over in the parking lot of D.C. Stadium that were asking for police officers. So I went in and took the exam and passed the exam and went on to the academy and became a cop. When I first went to <laughs> the first district where I was assigned to, if I would lock up somebody, some stupid officer would say, man, you know who locked you up? That's Herb and Peaches and Herb and all that stuff. And I would go to some homes where there was a disturbance and we'd start talking about music and things would calm down. So... One way it helped, and another way I didn't like it because they were telling people who locked them up, and it was me. For the first five or six years, I didn't even pay attention to music. I just listened to sports stations. I didn't want to hear music. I didn't want to be near it. But it's just like people who leave each other, and some guy misses his woman, and he goes back and begs to come back. I went back to my woman and begged to come back. And she let me come back. And my woman is music. I was a fool to ever leave your side. Me minus you is such a lonely ride. When I came back, that's when we had Shake the Groove thing reunited. I pledged my love. Peaches and Herb are still on the road working. As long as I'm alive, the name will stay there. The name will stay alive. I work. 
I believe in work. I, I, I don't. I believe if a man is capable of working, if he's healthy enough to do it, then you do it. I don't believe in retirement. I'll, I'll just work until I fade away. I believe in working. That was Herb Feemster of Peaches and Herb, talking with Metro Connections' Hans Anderson. for a break, but when we get back, exhausted educators will meet an instructor who says her time teaching in D.C. led to major burnout. Not only was I having these panic attack experiences, I was also snapping at my students. I was losing my patience. It's the last version of myself that I ever want my students to see. That and more in a minute as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is commitment. And up next, we're going to talk with people about being committed to their work, from teachers in D.C. public schools to watermen in the Chesapeake Bay. We'll begin with a man who's committed to preserving and promoting the history of one of Washington's oldest institutions. His name is Donald Ritchie. He's the U.S. Senate historian. And after nearly 40 years in the office, he's retiring next month. Matt McCluskey recently headed to Capitol Hill to visit Ritchie at his office. We're a little early. (laughs) Hi, Matt McCluskey. Hi, Matt. When I met Don Ritchie, he was just wrapping up an oral history interview. So come right in. Very similar piece of gear there. Yeah, yes, exactly. In fact, uh, we're sort of in the same business, but uh, mine is usually recorded for posterity. rather. As Senate historian, it's his job to field questions, sometimes from senators, but also from novelists and reporters. Is this the first time that happened? How often has that happened? Would it be correct if I said such and such or such and such? But one of his favorite parts of the job is recording oral histories of senators sometimes, but also of staffers and office workers, all the other people who make the institution tick. We started doing that back in 1976, interviewing people who had been here for decades. Some of the first people I interviewed had started here in the 1930s. Uh, The oldest was a man who had been a page in 1910, we found a woman who was the first person to integrate, racially integrate the cafeterias here. Who was she? Uh, her name was Christine McCreary, and she was, in 1953, she became a secretary to Senator Stuart Symington. What was it like coming to work in the Senate in those days? Well, it was different. I'll be frank. It, it was different. I didn't know what to expect. There had been uh, African-American clerks before, but if you were a clerk, you got a parking place and you could go home for lunch. Uh, Christine McCurry came to on the trolley car in the morning, got off, and a lot of the restaurants here on Capitol Hill were segregated, would not take uh, African-American uh, customers. And so she said to her senator, where am I supposed to have lunch? He said, why? why what, what are you asking me that for? Cafeteria? I said, Senator, do you know this is a segregated state or whatever it is, yes, district? Yeah. He said, oh, my God, yes. 
And so he called down. He said, my secretary's coming down. They said, oh, of course. I said, okay. So I thought everything was fine because he said, you know. And when she got there, of course, they realized that she was a black woman. I got to the door and this lady came flying over there to the door the way I was. She said, can I help you? I said, yes, I've come to get my breakfast. Well, oh, no, this is only for people who work in the Senate. I said, well, I work in the Senate with Senator Stuart Simon. But, oh, 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 okay, come on. Come on in. I have a seat. Well, everybody was stopped and looking, and it was like a, a big to-do. Well, I felt stupid. She went through the, the line to get her food, and the person behind who was in the cafeteria line was so nervous that they sort of pushed the plate out so fast that it sailed past her, and it broke on the floor and created a noise. And I said, what did you do? And she said, I waited until they gave me another plate, and I took a seat. And then I went back the next day and the next day. Until finally they got used to seeing me coming in there, and then there was no more problems with that. Eventually there were more African-American staff who were working here, and it was a second nature. There was never a law that said that those restaurants were segregated. They were just de facto segregated. There was never a movement to break it. It was just one person went down there and, and stood her ground. So, so powerful to hear that in her own that voice. Great? But that's the kind of story that you get that, you know, you can't get any other way. You, of course, have been in this office since the 1970s, right. um, first as an, uh, the associate historian and now uh, as the historian. I imagine a lot has changed uh, over oh, yeah. those uh, 40 years. Now, I have a picture back behind you. Uh, uh, it's uh, just behind that picture that's on there. This is the picture of the, uh, of the Senate, uh, the very first official picture that was taken of the Senate in 1963. And that's why I use that as a device for measuring change over time uh, in the institution. And in fact, if you look at it uh, superficially, it looks like it's exactly the same as the Senate today. And then I'll point out, you know, try to find the women in this picture. There were no women senators at all. There were very few women uh, who were, worked as, as staff of the Senate. There were practically no women in the press gallery. Today, if you go into the Senate chamber, there are 20 women senators. The front desk is almost all staffed by women clerks, and half of the press gallery are women. That's just one issue. And the political parties are very different today than they were when I got here in 1976. Both the Republicans and the Democrats were internally divided. There really were four political parties up here. There were conservative wings in both parties, and there were liberal wings in both parties. Every vote was a bipartisan vote between the conservatives in both parties against the liberals in both parties. In terms of the city of Washington and the oh, yeah. Senate's place in, in the city, how have you seen the city change over that oh, time? So I was here as a graduate student in the 1960s, and I was here during the riots in 1968. And on that day, very few of the Capitol Police uh, showed up for work uh, because they were all students. They were all patronage students who were working at Georgetown Law School or getting an undergraduate degree. The Capitol uh, Police were Capitol students. Police. Were, uh, Ca senator Harry Reid started out as a Capitol Policeman on the patronage of a Nevada senator. And lots of, lots of the people I do oral histories with uh, who are retired as veteran staff started out as patronage employees running an elevator or being a policeman or something like that. And it was, that was the moment when they realized they needed a professional police force and they, had to, they couldn't rely on patronage positions for uh, things like that. The city of Washington was actually decaying, and the, the federal government realized it had to do something to save it. And that's when the federal government recognized that there should be a separate city government, but one that Congress looks over its shoulder. Well, you're going to be retiring in May. Yes. Um, what does that mean for this office? I mean, you've been here either as associate historian or as historian since, since the beginning, right? right. Well, the office was started in 1975, and I was hired in early 1976. 
Uh, so I've just passed my 39th anniversary, and I'm entering my 40th year here. Uh, but uh, in the past, at least, we have always promoted from within on the grounds that it's you can't train to be the Senate historian. Nobody gives a course in you know, being a Senate historian. You have to. Le- it's like the parliamentarian of the Senate. You learn on the job. So usually uh, the staff move up, and we have a terrific staff here right now. I'm I'm very pleased. And one reason I can retire is I know that uh, the office will be in very good hands. It seems like the mission of the office is institutional memory. It is. And we do remember things that everybody else forgets. And uh, uh, quite often a reporter will call me and say, when was the last time this happened? And I'll tell them. And they'll say, I covered that story. But they'd completely forgotten it because they'd moved on to something else. And our job is to remember what everybody else puts out of their mind. That was Senate historian Donald Ritchie. He's retiring from his position next month. He spoke with WAMU's Matt McCleskey. Jacob Fenston produced their interview. turn now from Congress to the classroom. That's where Allie Bakker has been the past seven years as a Spanish teacher at Ballou High School. She came to D.C. public schools through the Teach for America program. She started a study abroad program that brought students to Ghana, Spain, Ecuador, among other countries. She loved her school. She loved her students. And the district paid her extra money because she was so effective. We first heard from Allie Bakker on Metro Connection in 2014 when special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brought us her story. But Kavitha recently learned Bakker had left the classroom mid-year. The two met up this week so Bakker could tell her tale. So I remember coming into Baloo my first year, this very idealistic recent college graduate. And every year there would be these teachers that would leave. And there was always this sense of pride for those of us that had stayed. And even in our first year, when it was just so hard and we were lesson planning until 10, 11 o'clock at night and then baking cookies early in the morning for our students and and just being ridiculous. (laughs) And I always thought it was so funny that in my third year of teaching, I was considered a veteran at Baloo. You know, I was department chair. By my seventh year, in a school of over 100 adults working there, there were only 10 that had been there longer than me. And I just found that crazy. So tell me what happened. I was very confused. I've worked very hard. I've developed a rapport with my students. I have good working relationships with the other teachers in the building. I trust and respect my principal. And I feel really good about the fact that we have this new building. We have just so many exciting things in our future. But I am miserable. I'm coming home every day crying. I can feel like I can barely do anything but collapse on the couch at the end of the day. And then I started getting panic attacks during school. But I didn't know what was happening to me. And then it started happening more frequently. I was convinced that I could push through it. That I was a lifer, that I was committed to Baloo and to my students. And so over winter break, I saw several therapists. I I was very mindful of taking time to relax and to re-energize myself so that I could be a better teacher again when I came back. Because not only was I having these panic attack experiences, I was also snapping at my students. I was losing my patience. 
It's the last version of myself that I ever want my students to see. I didn't want them to go home having not felt like I cared about them, that I thought that they were really, really capable and smart because so often the teacher is the one person that you can guarantee or hope to guarantee is going to tell them something positive about themselves that day. And in that first week back at school, before class even started actually, it was like 8.40 in the morning, I had just an awful panic attack that, that I had to go to the ER. I was able to describe this experience and what happened to me to friends and family that every day as teachers, our students are coming into the classroom with all of this pain and anger. And the only way to respond to that appropriately as a teacher is soaking it up like a sponge and just responding with kindness and patience and love. And I think that my sponge was just really full. There's a big difference to me seeing you now and when I saw you in the classroom where you were just glowing. Mm. And I feel a tremendous sense of sadness from you. I started teaching at Baloo when I was 21 years old. <laughs> so it, it was a quarter of my life. If anyone asked me, who is Ali Bakker? <laughs> I would have said, I am a teacher and I teach at Baloo. And let me tell you about all of my children. <laughs> Losing Baloo was very much like losing my identity. For some of my children, just getting to school was a, it was them overcoming incredible obstacles. And I was saying, you know, I've had a couple panic attacks and I'm the one giving up. When you started feeling the way you did, did you speak to your principal? I think DCPS would say they have several programs to retain teachers. You could teach part-time and then do a hybrid model of some kind of management. They pay teachers more compared to a lot of urban school districts. Mm -hmm. They have recognition ceremonies. What about all those efforts? I, I did reach out to several admin during the fall, and they were supportive. They absolutely were supportive, and I don't fault them in any way for my needing to leave. One of the programs you mentioned was, you know, splitting time between some more leadership, a leadership position while also teaching. So often our answer, our response to teacher retention is moving them in to non-teaching positions. We want you to be a teacher mentor and we're going to move you into an administrative position or into a teacher mentor position or someone who's leading professional development that means that those best teachers are no longer in the classroom. And I think for a teacher retention program to truly work, the goal should be to keep our best teachers in front of students for a full schedule of the day. <laughs> and that's the big difference. I feel like in order to improve teacher retention, especially for teachers working in high-risk communities, there needs to be a very deliberate break where teachers have an opportunity to still work in the field of education as a teacher's assistant, right? So that I'm given the opportunity to support another teacher in what they're doing, but don't have the nightly responsibilities of lesson planning and making phone calls and all of those things, but also to re-inspire them, to, to send them back to their schools, that same idealistic, excited, change maker person that I was my first and second year. 
That was former DCPS teacher Ali Bakker talking with special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza. Bakker is soon moving back to her hometown in Pennsylvania. She says she hopes the Baloo International Program continues. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. On last week's show, we journeyed to Cambridge, Maryland, for a closer look at the University of Maryland's Horn Point Oyster Hatchery. The hatchery is at the center of an effort to breed healthy baby oysters to repopulate the floor of the Chesapeake Bay. But scientists aren't the only ones working to bring oyster levels back from the brink. Commercial aquaculture is on the rise in Maryland. And as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, some people have mixed feelings about its potential. Stop by Waterman's Wharf at Solomon's Island any weekday around noon during oyster season, and you're likely to find Tommy Zinn and his crew loading bushel after bushel of oysters into a box truck. The Waterman selling to Tommy motor away with a little more cash in hand than they did a year ago. Prices have hit a record high in the Chesapeake this year. That's thanks to a production shortage in the Gulf of Mexico, a shortage caused in part by the aftermath of the BP oil spill. The last couple of years we paid on an average of $32 to $35 a bushel. This year we're paying an average of 42 to 45. The oyster harvest in Maryland has been relatively plentiful in recent years as well. Last year, Waterman hauled in 422,000 bushels, the highest total in more than a decade. And the last three years has been very productive. It's not back to the historic levels of the 60s and 70s, but it's, it's really improved. Unfortunately, Maryland's Department of Natural Resources says that trend is already reversing. DNR's Mike Naylor says plentiful harvest in recent years can be traced directly back to two strong reproductive seasons in 2010 and 2012. The ingredients for perfect wild oyster spawning seasons aren't entirely understood, but this much is certain. They don't often happen anymore in the Chesapeake Bay. This year's harvest is lower than last year's harvest. Next year's harvest will be lower than this year's harvest because we haven't had good reproduction since 2012. And this is why the rise in aquaculture, the practice of growing oysters, has many folks at DNR so excited. There are very few things that we do in the Bay that are as obviously beneficial as aquaculture. Oysters in aquaculture clear the water. Most of them reproduce and produce baby oysters that can spawn and go elsewhere. It promotes small businesses. So the state is doing everything we can to encourage the growth of aquaculture without impeding on the other uses of the water. In 2009, Maryland changed laws to make it easier to lease space in the bay to grow oysters. Barry, let, it, let them out so we can uh, slide the boat forward. Not long after that change, Easton native Tim Devine returned to Maryland to plunge headfirst into the aquaculture industry with a startup he called Barren Island Oysters. So this is exactly what we're looking for. That is a perfect oyster. Devine is standing on a pier outside his company's home base as members of his crew unload cages of oysters grown on a 10-acre lease area off of, you guessed it, Barren Island. The operation now sells 18 to 25,000 oysters each week. I killed a ton of them my first year, but before all of that, I had done like due diligence and picked the right spot for the right reasons and had done plenty of market research. And I was able to sell those oysters that I grew really easily and for a really good price. Devine says that price hasn't changed much in the four years since he founded Barren Island Oysters. He sells them to restaurants at around 75 cents per oyster. That's at least five times what most watermen bring in with wild oysters. 
the difference comes down to aesthetics and investment. Aquaculturists spend more time and money tending to their oyster beds and can more easily control the quality, size, and shape of their oysters. Those oysters are the ones that end up on restaurant plates. Most wild oysters are processed simply for their meat, more likely to end up in a Louisiana po'boy sandwich than served on the half shell. I don't actually, you know, have much of an opinion on the wild oysters because they, they have zero effect on my market. It's very interesting. Um, most places that buy my particular boutique oyster um, don't serve wild oysters at all anyways. And yet there's tension between the rise of aquaculture in Maryland and watermen wary of major changes to the way they do business. Simon Dean is an oyster boat captain who often sells bushels to Tommy Zinn, as he's just done back at Solomon's Island Wharf. Dean has worked on the water for more than two decades and says DNR is tipping the scales a bit too much in the aquaculturist favor. I'd say fisheries management has definitely focused more on aquaculture, you know, trying to get that a jump start. And, you know, it's just, it's a touchy subject. Dean says this isn't just due to worries about aquaculture's effect on the market for wild oysters. He and many other watermen worry aquaculture leases are infringing on territory important for other fisheries as well. We're all fighting for the same market. We're fighting for the same bottom. You know, if somebody wants to get in the cage, you know, the cage fishery, oysters and aquaculture, you know, so the crabbers are, well, that's where we crabbed at. That's where we did this. And everybody just fighting over the same resource. Whether watermen like Dean approve or not, Maryland leaders clearly want aquaculture to blossom. And if there's a whiff of desperation about the effort, it doesn't only have to do with oysters' proven contributions to water quality. DNR's Mike Naylor says when it comes to growing oysters for commercial purposes, Maryland is playing catch-up. It's a growing industry. It's about a $100 million annual industry on the east coast of the United States. It's an over $30 million annual industry in Virginia. And Maryland has largely lost out on the potential for that growth because of the policies that have been in place in the state over time. Back at Solomon's Island, Tommy Zinn believes Maryland's aquaculture industry and its wild oyster fishery can both survive and flourish. But he says that can only happen with a cleaner Chesapeake Bay. Believe me, the the oyster can only survive if he's got a food source and good water quality. So we all need to do a better job of policing ourselves and, and try to take care of the environment. And if we don't, and the Bay's oysters continue to decline, there's a chance that today's fight between aquaculturists and traditional fishermen will look like a petty squabble that missed the bigger picture. I'm Jonathan Wilson. minute from the marine corps to the mambo i said you hey how about these ballroom dance lessons and he said you were serious and i said i paid for them buy 10 get one free i just wanted him to be comfortable at the marine corps ball the retired leathernecks taking the ballroom dance world by storm it's just ahead on metro connection on wamu 88.5 Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking commitment. At the start of the show, we heard the story of a woman and man who met, got engaged, and got married at the tender ages of 90 and 93. And in just a bit, we'll find out why two retired Marines are devoting themselves to the foxtrot. 
But first, it's time for the newest installment in a series we debuted earlier this year, Clips. It's our ongoing exploration of D.C.'s barbershops in partnership with Elevation D.C., a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. This time on Clips, we'll head to Adams Morgan, just east of 18th Street Northwest to the corner of Florida Avenue and Champlain. That's where you'll find Eddie's Hair Creations, a lively spot with red and white checkered floors, bright red leather chairs, and wall racks of reggae CDs for sale. You can also buy bags of Dr. Dredd's famous Jamaican jerk potato chips. All the barbers at Eddie's Hair Creations are Rastafarian, including the owner, 62-year-old Kofi Asante, who hails from Ghana. So you're Eddie? I used to be. When they take me to church, my people were Methodists. They Christian me into Edward. But I'm a Rastaman now, so I go by my original African name, which is Kofi Asante, born on Friday. Indeed, Kofi is the name traditionally given to boys in Ghana who are born on a Friday. As for the origin of Kofi Asante's last name? Asante is the name of a tribe, a very big kingdom in uh, Ghana. Kofi came to the U.S. in the late 70s. He enrolled at the University of Maryland in 1979, but decided college wasn't his calling. So after a few odd jobs here and there, he ended up in barber school in Wheaton. He finished in 1989 and cut hair at a shop in Mount Pleasant before opening Eddie's Hair Creations in 1991. When we came here in 91, this neighborhood was nothing but blacks. This building here was the Kilimanjaro, the, the biggest black club. That's why I chose this place. Before too long, though, the 18th Street corridor started to change. It got more expensive, Kofi says, and more white. Soon, he and his staff were terrified they'd have to close down. But what happened instead, he says? Business got better. Kofi started seeing all sorts of customers flock to the shop. Black people come here, see it. A lot of white people come here. Not everybody come here. That includes clients who've been coming since they were kids. Kofi says they're like family. They're like my children. (laughs) He also sees basketball players from local colleges. George Washington, uh, Georgetown, all the boys come here. And diplomats from what he calls the black embassies. Most of the embassies in and DC come here. Then there are the regulars who visit when they're passing through town, like boxing legend Evander Holyfield. Dallas Cowboys receiver, Mike Irvin. Basketball player Isaiah Thomas. Jesse Jackson Jr. Even R&B superstar Usher and actor and rap artist Moose Def. How many haircuts do you think um, happen every day here? Every day? I would I think about 70 to 100. Not too shabby, if you consider that Eddie's Hair Creations doesn't pay for advertising. You're never going to have your own website and do your own advertising? I don't know how to use a computer. I'm a bushman. That may or may not be true, but at this point, Kofi says his success pretty much comes from word of mouth. A haircut is advertisement by itself. Though it should be noted, Eddie's goes beyond haircuts. Kofi Asante says many people swing by each day just to hang out. Some people come through about four times a week. Because the way he sees it? Black Barbershop is our community center. This is where we, we meet, you know, and, and we have fun. And in a few short years, he plans on creating the same kind of community center in his homeland of Ghana. When he turns 65, Kofi Asante is leaving Eddie's Hair Creations to his son Kwame and returning to Ghana to start the country's first barber school. I want to give back to where I come from. In the meantime, he'll keep giving back here in D.C., just like he's been doing for nearly a quarter century. 
You can see the Eddie's Hair Creations crew in action on our website. We also have a link to Elevation DC's right up of the shop. It's all on metroconnection.org. And as we continue our series on DC barbershops, we want to hear from you. At last count, the city had 112 licensed shops. So if you have a favorite spot, let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. But your haircut is as short as mine. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. But your haircut is as short as mine. We turn now to sports. We have four major professional sports teams here in Washington, and many players on those teams easily make seven figures. But Joanna Lohman is not on one of those teams. She's a midfielder with the Washington Spirit, a part of the National Women's Soccer League. And as such, she gets paid less than $50 a day. Lauren Ober caught up with Lohman in between practices to find out how she makes it work and why. In a recent TED Talk, Joanna Lohman got real about what it's actually like to be a professional female athlete. Forget the Tom Brady's and the Peyton Manning's. I do not have the luxury house, and I definitely don't have the Ferrari. Uh, we're more like the players living in your basement because we can't afford our own apartment. But the funny thing is, I feel like I have the life of a millionaire. To me, I have everything. I am rich beyond measure. Loman is 32, the oldest player on the Washington Spirit. She grew up in Silver Spring, where she played soccer at Springbrook High School. After an illustrious college career, Lohman played professionally all over the world, Sweden, Spain, and Japan, to name a few. None of it has been easy. There have been devastating injuries and endless sacrifices. So I wondered, why do it? How is any of it worth it? And what makes her lace up her cleats day after day? What I like about soccer or football, as they call it in Europe, is that it's truly the beautiful game. Everyone plays it no matter where you are on the globe, and it's universal language. So it's a great way to start conversations, to make friends, and it's, an, it's the best way, I think, to be active. You've had quite a long career. How have you made that work? I've had a very long career. I've probably been playing professionally for 11 years now, and when you're a woman soccer player, you put up with a lot of, I would say, BS in a certain way. You don't get paid very much. You're constantly traveling. You have no stability. You tend to live with host families. So there's a lot that comes with it. But for me, I get to do what I love every single day when I wake up. And I wouldn't trade my life for anything in the world. Uh, I know I said in my TED Talk I made $18,000 a year. I make less than that now. And you just have to be very resourceful. And you have to really focus on the positive things that the sport brings you. You know, after a game when a girl wants my autograph or wants to take a picture with me, I mean, that's, that is priceless. And I think about my friends who are working corporate jobs from 9 to 5, whoever comes in and asks for their autograph or picture. And, you know, people truly admire female athletes in America, and there's, there's no better country to be a female athlete than the United States. And I feel very lucky to have this job, and I take my role as a professional athlete and as a role model very seriously. I'm wondering if you can recall when you decided I'm going to commit to this life just the personality that I am I'm the kind of person that's all in all the time I don't do anything halfway so to speak whether that be playing soccer coaching or meeting fans so it was an investment I knew in college that it was something that I was 
I was excelling at and something that brought me a lot of fulfillment. And I think once I left college and I explored internationally, playing internationally, even through injuries, I knew it was something that I loved. And honestly, it's it's irreplaceable. I think about when I have to retire and it scares me so much because I don't know what is going to give me the feeling that soccer gives me every day to be a part of the team, to be able to compete each and every day and strive towards not only individual goals but group goals. And it just gives me so much value in my life. Give me the scoop on your hair. Ooh, the Joe Hawk. So probably about 2007, I, I was playing over in Sweden and I decided that I needed a new haircut, so I decided to cut it into a wicked mohawk. And it's kind of ebbed and flowed since then, but just recently I've kind of gone back hardcore with the hawk and started to put in designs and patterns. So the side of my head now is I would like to call a shooting star. So we have about three or four lines and then a star. And I also t- like, take color pencils and draw in different colors into the pattern, <laughs> depending on my mood and what's going on today. That was Lauren Ober talking with professional soccer player Joanna Lohman. You can catch the Washington Spirits' home opener against FC Kansas City on April 18th at the Maryland Soccerplex. Oh, and that TED Talk you heard a little bit of, you can find a link to the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll close out today's show on the dance floor. Lauren Landau has the story. Let's first welcome from Virginia, couple 157, Mike and Roseanne Lynch. Fredericksburg residents Mike and Roseanne Lynch glide onto the dance floor at the 35th annual USA Dance National Danceport Championships in Baltimore. With her deep red hair neatly piled on top of her head, Roseanne twirls in a form-fitting zebra pattern dress. The Lynches are among more than 1,000 dancers here from across the country, including 50 from the D.C. area. They compete in the American smooth style, dancing the waltz, foxtrot, Viennese waltz, and... Mike recently turned 55, placing him and 53-year-old Roseanne in the Senior 3 division. The dancers compete in different styles and age groups. But on this night, the Lynches face off against both their peers and dancers 10 years their junior. And they win in both categories. And the winners from Virginia, number 157, Mike and Roseanne Lynch and Arsenian Green. Smooth championship finalist winners are from Virginia, number 157, Mike. By the time all the winners are announced and the music stops, it's 2 a.m. We sit down in a now-quiet practice room to talk. Roseanne and Mike are both retired lieutenant colonels in the Marines, but they still hold full-time jobs. I'm an environmental consultant with the firm Marsdale Day. And I work at the Pentagon with the Pentagon Force Protection Agency. They say dance helps them de-stress from busy days at the office. Roseanne loves the music and the artistry, while Mike enjoys the athleticism and social community that ballroom dance offers. But I think primarily when I found out you can compete in ballroom really snagged me. And for for Roseanne and I, since we both have a competitive background and a competitive nature, it was something we took to. 
It's something we can do together. That was what was important. You see so often couples, he's doing one thing, she's doing something else. We're connected when we're working out. Roseanne says it's important to walk into a competition feeling prepared. We normally practice six times a week for about an hour and a half each practice. Um, On weekends, we do a whole lot more than that. We're probably three or four hours on the floor each day. They racked up a bunch of championship titles. But two weeks before the 2013 championships in Los Angeles, Mike tore cartilage in his knee. Injury is never an excuse. You know, every every day, every dance is a different opportunity to succeed or, or not. He pushed through the pain, dancing on an injured knee, and won. But after getting surgery, he had a long recovery ahead of him. Roseanne says that cut into practice time, which put them at a disadvantage in 2014. Suddenly you're now going on to maybe two hours a week, and then in between icing and healing, it was a little bit tougher. They're back on top this year. While both say that feels good, Roseanne thinks it's important to enjoy the journey. You know, you're Cinderella for how many hours when you come to these competitions? The makeup, the bling, the dresses, good-looking men in tail suits, it is fabulous. You just feel so amazing doing it. When Monday came, Cinderella traded in her gown for a suit and returned to work at the Pentagon. But for at least another year, she'll be wearing her crown, even if you can't see it. I'm Lauren Landau. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Hans Anderson, Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, Kapitha Cardoza, Matt McCleskey, and Lauren Landau, with special production thanks to Jacob Fenston. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. Coming up next week, as residents in Marion Barry's former stomping grounds prepare to elect a new D.C. council member, we'll bring you a show all about Washington's Ward 8. We'll look at the future of Berry Farm, once known as a hub for free blacks and freed slaves after the Civil War. We'll visit a used car dealership that provides the community with more than just a set of wheels. And we'll find out how local storytellers view their home sweet home. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.